Heavy Hops is a Scorched Tundra production. You can access all our episodes with detailed show notes and information about upcoming events by visiting scorchedtundra.com slash heavyhops. Be sure to follow us on your preferred social media platform. Subscribe, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access podcasts. Thanks for supporting us and enjoy the show. I've, I've had people ask me in various job scenarios post Delilah's that what I'm most proud of in the industry, it's I'm like, it's that I've never done cocaine. Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name's Alexi. My name's Sam. Our conversation revolves around the void in our industry left by the closure of bars, tap rooms, and restaurants, which we refer to as on-premise. We discussed this dimension with Eric Rosentreter, a Chicago-based bourbon and whiskey expert. Eric has extensive experience in on-premise as a bartender at Delilah's, a world-class whiskey bar located in Chicago's Lincoln Park neighborhood, as a supplier with Heaven's Door Whiskey, and with Beverage Testing Institute. We also take the opportunity to discuss growth by acquisition in the brown spirit space, the secondary market, and cautionary tales about on-premise reopening. Let's dive and get heavy. Welcome to Heavy Hops. Eric, thank you for joining us today. Hey, Lexi. Hey, Sam. It's good to be seen. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it definitely is. And uh, it's good to see you. And I think that we need to uh, let people get to know you a little bit uh, before we jump into all these fun topics that we want to talk about today. You, Sam, and I all met uh, when we were at a job in on, in the on-premise world, which doesn't exist right now. Um, and I know that that's an area that you've spent a lot of time in. And I, you know, where did you kind of start in the spirits world? Um, I started actually uh, by breaking up a fight at Delilah's on Punk Rock Monday. <laughs> um, no joke, that was that, <laughs> that was my entry into the world. Uh, I was a, a an electrician's apprentice. This was about twenty years ago now, um, and I lived right by Delilah's. Me and my best friend of since high school. And we would go over there on Punk Rock Mondays. We'd watch like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, have some people over, drink some shitty beer, go to Delilah's, drink some more shitty beer and listen to <laughs> Punk Rock. And, and it was a thing. And it was towards the end. And this was back when Delilah's was like that. Um, it was that punk rock metal bar that happened to have a lot of whiskey. It wasn't that whiskey bar that plays punk rock and metal sometimes. Uh, it has since obviously flip-flopped, but... Back then, um, there were a lot of uh, unsavory characters that would hang around, and, and that area was a little bit different. It was a little more working class back then, too, um, and it was late on a Monday night. Uh, I saw a fight happening upstairs, and I broke it up, um, took a shot to the, to the head, but luckily, I've got a thick skull, and got the, helped the guys get uh, the team get them outside went back up to the bar upstairs and asked for another round. And uh, it was uh, this guy, Jim, who went to open up Longman and Eagle or help open Longman and Eagle, one of the founding partners in that. And I asked him for a job and he's like, yeah, we need a Saturday door guy. And off we went. Uh, 13 years later, I ended up leaving, but uh, it was a hell of a ride for sure. We saw a lot happen in that, in that window. 
Mm -hmm. So obviously you were there for 13 years. That's a significant amount of time to stay in one restaurant or bar. Um, And Delilah's is a Chicago cultural institution. Um, So I'm a little curious about, you know, some of your time there and working from being the door guy to bar attending there and you know kind of your journey through Delilah's yeah I mean this was before you know the cocktail revolution of a decade ago or whenever it was um it was very much like a neighborhood joint um thanks to the Chicago fire and the rezoning that happened because of that each neighborhood essentially has its own uh bar Mayor Daly tried to shut a lot of those down uh towards the end of his reign but um, working at Delilah's and, and coming from a blue collar background, uh, my dad was a contractor, my mom was in real estate. So I came up like around construction and building homes. And I, that's how I made money in, in school, in, in high school and even grade school. Um, what I loved about Delilah's and, and how it got its hooks in me essentially was for one, the people, um, that, that mural outside the, the front door of Delilah's, the Joe Strummer mural, without people, you're nothing. Like I did that on the anniversary of Joe Strummer's death uh, years ago. And I, I firmly believe that. I get that from my, my mom and my dad who are people-based people. But what I loved about it was, um, it was a true apprenticeship in every way. I didn't walk it. I mean, I wore like a cable knit sweater um, and jeans and like I, I was, I, I didn't wear the Delilah's costume back then. Uh, that was a, that was part of the indoctrination. It kind of just rubbed off on me at the time. Uh, I have since lost the pompadour and the biker jacket, but I still have the attitude. But it was that that apprenticeship of it. Um, I worked the door part time for a long time before I got the opportunity to bar back, and the bar backing part of it, which which was for years also. Um, was was really backbreaking um it's a lot it was manual labor for sure uh there's everybody who works there um it's a little different from men to women uh i don't know if you guys want to unpack that bag of cats but we can but um everybody who works there uh, effectively knows how to take apart every bartender that works there i should say uh, effectively knows how to take that bar apart and put it back together uh not out of design but uh necessity if that makes sense you know you, you blow a keg you pinch a wire or you pinch a tube you gotta swap you gotta hot swap it out um uh, you guys know all about how uh fun that is on a saturday night <laughs> getting sprayed with beer and and making uh below minimum wage for whatever tips uh but but i loved it it was almost an addiction <laughs> really um between mm-hmm between you know the hours uh, the hours were the worst part because uh, something that doesn't really get talked about or uh, addressed directly in our industry is is you're willfully alienating yourself from normalcy and, and that took a while to get used to um missing out on my cousins uh baptisms and things like that weekends i don't i still don't know what a weekend is uh, hopefully somebody can explain those to me soon um but just shit like that you know the, the nuanced things uh it's kind of like the pandemic that we're in right now it's you think you're okay but that little stone that gets thrown into the pool can really disrupt things and it was like that in the service industry too mm-hmm. 
Yeah. yeah. You you definitely end up with your own group of people because you're all living the same schedule. And I think that that, <laughs> that uh, forces relationships that may otherwise not exist <laughs> in the world. Uh, it, it forces relationships, but it also develops uh, a, a sense of the importance of choice. Um, I've, I've had people ask me in various job scenarios post Delilah's that what I'm most proud of in the industry, it's I'm like, it's that I've never done cocaine after working, uh, working <laughs> years in a bar. I'm not against it. Hey, if you're an adult, do what you want. I really don't care. But uh, I, I said that at like one of the final stages of a job interview once, and, and I thought this person was going to spit their coffee out, but they laughed. <laughs> like, like, I, I, one thing I learned while learning how to bartend is if you can get them to laugh, you got them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it, for one, it takes the seriousness down a little bit because uh, I, I take seriousness as a challenge because I want to mess with that constantly. Mm-hmm. Delilah's is well known for its uh spirits and specifically it's uh it's bourbon um for for those that haven't been there for our listeners that haven't been there can you kind of describe what that aspect of delilah's is and what you learned in the process of moving through the ranks there um i I think one of the things i found most special about delilah's um especially with uh, the specialization of everything post uh social media is that we realized that um that we wanted to be uh everything for somebody not something for everybody and i think having that line in the sand uh is very important like not letting the customer dictate what you do always try to go please the customer because that's our job um, that's the service aspect of our jobs, but, um, also too, if you ask Mike, uh, the owner of Delilah's, he will never call Delilah's a whiskey bar. Uh, he, he'll probably famously say that, uh, and it's not just bourbon, it's, it's all whiskey. Uh, but there's a lot of everything. I think he's got like 40 absence for Christ's sake. Cause why wouldn't he? Um, <laughs> but I think, what he'll say is that, you know, somebody else called me a whiskey bar. He would never do that because if he called himself a whiskey bar, all of a sudden he's going up against his heroes too. And I think that's kind of a cool way to look at it. Um, when I stepped away from Delilah's and stepped into a whiskey ambassador position, I, I didn't like that job title because I thought of all the great ambassadors that came before me and I was helping create a new role in a company. So I uh, lobbied and failed to have our job titles changed, but just like little nuances like that. Like I'm, I'm a sucker for verbiage. Uh, I get that from my time at the beverage testing Institute as well. It's the, the nuance of wordplay. Uh, I'm a big, big fan of. Mm-hmm. That's why I talk so much so I can find the right words. <laughs> uh, I, 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 th- I think for someone who, uh, for someone like Mike Miller, who's the owner of Delilah's, I think the people that own those very unique places don't like to be pigeonholed as well. No. And so they, it's their place. And so for them, it's important that it doesn't have labels so that it can change over time with their personality as well since it's really an expression of them yeah for sure uh that's that's a great way to put it alexi that um i saw working at delilah's and uh, definitely working at warehouse liquors now as working within an extension of the owner's uh mind or psyche 
Uh, that's that's kind of the gift and the curse of the independent business person is that you're like you're working within somebody's brain like every time you're there and and if you don't respect that um they take they get really upset with you and, and rightfully so you know i think there's a lot of people that i think a lot of our industry got lazy over the last couple of years to be honest yeah i mean i think part of that is due to the flooding of the market with you know with the abundance of jobs that became available, there became the sort of complacency in people being not, I, I think of the time when I was at Frontier and you wanted to work at Frontier at that point, right? There was like that, that extreme demand to work there. So there was that drive in people to do it. There's not really that kind of a restaurant or a bar market anymore in Chicago. So well, I think you're right. right. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> not as not. of January 28th, uh, 2021. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but, but even but, before the pandemic, you know? Well, that's, mm -hmm. I mean, that's what I mean by like um, being a sucker for verbiage. Um, you look at the, uh, the specialization of everything, which is fine, but a good drink, just because you can make a good drink doesn't mean you're a good bartender like that sort of thing. And I think that that line had been blurred for a long time or started to be blurred a long time ago. And it just became more and more hyperbolic that um, all of a sudden, you know, people are more worried about uh, their social media presence rather than being present. And and it, 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 it was like a self-alienation tool. Um, it was rampant in the bar, bartender community, almost to the point where like the term star tender almost came back. Which is, <laughs> I, I didn't know that it left. I thought that it was like a permanent <laughs> thing. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I suppose. I mean, it's it, it's one of those things that, like, uh, um, I, trying to like there was a lack of humility, if that makes any sense. Um, mm -hmm. That at any given moment, um, you know, we're providing people with what they look forward to doing all day. And if you can't stop and remind yourself of that and maybe quit taking yourself so seriously, uh, then maybe, <laughs> maybe you've completely lost the plot and, and, and maybe it's not the right industry for you too. It's, it's okay to walk away. You don't have to have a drug problem or drink too much to step away from the industry. It's not for everybody. And, and I get that. And to Sam's point with Frontier uh, in places like that and Delilah's for sure and local option 100%, that like every day was a challenge before we'd open the doors. It was like a rush be like, cool. Like today, like, what are we going to get ourselves into today? Mm -hmm. That was part of the excitement and, and where my sense of addiction came in almost. Totally. Yeah. It, it fuels that, you know, you get, you get hooked on that rush and you just want to keep, you know, right. It, yeah. <laughs> but it's hard to shut it off after a shift too. Um, the, yeah. The, the, the lay person doesn't get that you know, we don't close up shop and go home. Like you don't have a, a solid day of getting your ass kicked at the office or whatever, and then go home and then you're in bed by six 30. I mean, most people don't, I shouldn't say nobody, but, uh, and that's one of the hard parts about the industry too, that, um, that non-industry people won't understand. Mm -hmm. uh, if I never see a sunrise again, I'd be fine with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Seen a lot. Yeah. No, it's common. So it's like a brotherhood almost. It's like a fraternal order. Uh, I shouldn't say a brotherhood, but like a fraternal order, like a secret society where it's, hey, can I get a high life in a fernet? I mean, back in the day, it'd be like, well, okay, so where do you work? Like sort of, right. it's like these little things, you know, it's like, oh, so 
you've pulled your time too. It's like an almost like a bond, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You form it with those people who have to unfortunately be at their job later than you do. (laughs) Working working in the morning is for some. So from, you know, that lifestyle, you transitioned to the being an ambassador. So you were more working on the supplier side. Um, Yeah. How did that transition happen and what did you kind of do as a brand ambassador? Um, After I left Delilah's, um, I went to work at the Beverage Testing Institute for a year uh, doing tasting production and coordination, getting really into uh, kind of higher thought, higher conversation, marketing components of our industry being, you know, ratings, consulting on how to go to market, routes to market, things like that. Um, I, I, I didn't enjoy it. And I think a lot of that came from going from working in a bar full time, uh, especially Delilah's to being stuck in an office with a small group of people doing the same thing every day. I mean, my, I've, I've got the attention span of a hamster on speed and it's just like, if it doesn't work, it becomes abundantly clear pretty rapidly. So after a year I left there to go work with um, Redemption Whiskies and Deutsch Family Wine and Spirits and covered the middle America. I was doing 17 states, give or take. And my job was to build relationships, um, explore, do reconnaissance, uh, develop relationships and programming, keep your finger on the pulse in all these things, report to my salespeople. Uh, It was a lot. It took me about a year to get into it. Uh, I could work from home. Uh, I, I set up a home office, which uh, took me about six months to discipline myself. Uh, it takes time to discipline yourself to working from home. Um, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure the rest of the world knows that by now. It's extremely, it's a, it's a luxury, but it's a stressful luxury. Mm-hmm. Um, did that for a few years, uh, left for reasons I won't go into, um, and started working uh, with Heaven's Door Whiskey about a year ago. Um, and Nichols worth of free advice. Don't make a career change before an entire planet gets sick. Uh, it fucking sucks. <laughs> uh, got furloughed, uh, for, for a couple months. Uh, I'm working with them in a part-time capacity right now. Um, but they're, I mean, just nothing's open right now. So we're hopefully laying some foundations as to where to move forward. Uh, if we should move forward, but, um, doing that, working with uh, Gene at Warehouse Liquors and doing virtual tastings with Chris Quinn at Beer Temple. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm this close to buying some Just For Men because I'm going great real quick. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it sounds like you're also getting a little bit of off-premise experience too. And yeah, sure. that's another component of the uh, beverage industry experience that's important. And I think that a lot of people that work typically uh, on premise are a certain breed of person. And those people are now learning about the off premise in ways that they haven't before. And there's a lot to learn there. It's not where they probably imagined. And it's probably not maybe where you imagined when you, uh, started working with Redemption that you would go into the off-premise because it's almost a different world altogether. But there's a lot to learn there at the same time. 
Um, working off premise, um, I, I thoroughly enjoy it, but it's only really amplified directly how important bars and restaurants are in this town, um, especially the specialization that we do at Warehouse Liquors. I mean, there's a big link uh, missing from the chain right now. And we're all kind of in this holding pattern of just super passive aggressive Midwestern reaction to everything right now that, you know, we're, we're starting to open up here, which uh, some places are, uh, I know Mike at Delilah's, Michael Roper at, at Hopleaf, they're like, we will open when it's safe to, or their staff can get vaccinated whenever the hell that is going to happen. Uh, and that's a lot that, that is undoubtedly a luxury to be able to make that decision a hundred percent. But seeing how everything is connected, um, the importance of the on-premise world. Uh, the, the bartenders I know are, are front of house people or on-premise that are in off-premise right now are crushing it. They love people. They may get a little chatty on the floor and might not want to do the grunt work, but it's, it's humbling again. Mm-hmm. You know, at the end of the night, we have to mop up. We have to, uh, you know, possibly kick people out for not wearing masks. I, I ran into that a lot over the summer. Um, and I get it, but it's like at any moment, and that's where I think on-premise people thrive is because we we always have to just pivot and be ready for everything constantly. To me, that's a lot more natural than uh, stasis, you know, is that perpetual flux and potential anticipation of anything. But also too is um, the building of trust uh, has become a lot more of a long process to, hey, I've never had this whiskey before or this tequila. We can't say, well, go to Franklin Room, go to Delilah's, go to a local option or whatever <laughs> and try this. Um, that one ounce, try it, try it before you buy it world just really doesn't exist right now. So it, it's a it's a very unique challenge. Um, I, I'm not sure how other people are talking about it. I haven't really seen a lot of chatter, but we're trying to gain the trust of the people that the, the, that weird section of people that kind of have a glut of digestible income right now. And it's, it's very strange. It Mm -hmm. it takes time. And I mean, downtown is downtown is like it was in the nineties and eighties. I mean, it's really bad right now. Um, Everything smells like shitty weed and people are doing donuts in the streets. It's just, (laughs) I'm okay with it because I'm a big, angry looking white guy. Nobody really fucks with me. Um, but other than that, like it's a challenging place to do business right now and it'll bounce back, blah, 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 optimism and all that shit. But right now it sucks. Uh, taking the red line after dark is horrifying. It's really shown the light on a very, very ugly side of the city that has always been there. Uh, been there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's a uh, very long question to a short, very long yeah. a short question. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I want to rewind a little bit um, on what you were talking about. So uh, like you were saying, a lot of people, you know, they find whiskeys that they like through going to bars. How exactly do you convey to a, a person who's a lot less experienced with liquor and let's just take Basil Hayden, a $60 bottle. How do you convince someone that they want that bottle when they've never tried it before? Um, it's uh, knowledge. Um, honestly, just straight up 
uh, taking them and building that trust. It's almost like micro consulting um, to the point where you're just like wanted it. You can't do it with everybody. Uh, you know, some people just want their, you know, pint of Jim Beam and their six pack of PBR. Uh, those And those people come in every day and they're awesome in their own unique way. But um, it, it's, again, it's building trust. It's It's highlighting knowledge that you have. And if you don't, um, I went into a major chain, uh, a major liquor store uh, not too long ago, and I was looking for a kind of a, a unique liqueur that I knew they had. And I asked somebody where it was. 20 minutes later, I'm talking with like half their staff about their liqueurs uh, because that, <laughs> they just didn't know. I don't want to say educating them because that sounds really pretentious and obnoxious, but we were just all bullshitting about these things. And, and it was a cool experience. But like these guys didn't know what they were doing. Like, well, how can, you, how can you sell something if you don't know what you're talking about? So having that right. extra time, not only at Delilah's, but BTI, um, my time at Redemption for sure, really brought my cocktail knowledge uh, to where it should be. And taking that, and it's it's kind of like that, uh, um, it's, it's kind of like a filter. Like somebody's asking about a cocktail. It's just like, you know, your mind starts going through this filtration process. And you find that information that they may be looking for. Um, some people just want what they want because that's what they want. Um, my opinion of being a sucker aside, uh, those adventuresome drinkers are out there, and and having that having approachability is hugely important too. Um, that that's something I see in a lot of specialty stores or even cocktail bars. Um, I try not to make it a birthday party at Lens Crafters. Like you got to have fun with it. Uh, we're providing, we're drug dealers. We're providing people with a good time. Um, mm-hmm. It's all lighten up Francis. You know what I mean? <laughs> and have fun with it. That's, that's the whole point. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think that's another reason why the service industry is so addictive for people. It is a party. Every time you work, if you want it to be, yeah. you know, yeah. it's, it really is what you make of it. If you're doing it for the right reasons and you enjoy it, yeah, sure. And that's, that's, I think, a turning point that I think most people have in our industry is that you, you, you step back from everything being right in your face and, and you see the bigger picture and you start to develop your own voice. Uh, you start to develop your own personality. And for me, um, you know, getting married uh, and doing that whole thing and trying to build, you know, trying to contribute to, to, my wife and my future, it was just kind of like, okay, I want a different challenge. You know, um, I can make an old fashioned in 47 seconds. Like what's next? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like it was that kind of like, I don't want to say I outgrew it because I, I didn't. Um, I, I had just, uh, I want to say even hit a ceiling. I'm not sure how to phrase it without sounding like an asshole, but, um, it was time to move on. Uh, I started becoming really bitter too, to be honest, when I was bartending, uh, I was done. I knew I was done. Uh, and my wife, my wife knew it before I did, but yeah. <laughs> I think that's one, that's one of the things that people kind of stay too long and they end up bitter Sure. and they wreck it's more that other people recognize that first and that's probably a a time to move on in some way. And I think that there is going to be a glut of people that are going to want those positions and there's going to be 
people, there's always going to be a cycle of people coming in in some way. Yeah. And so in a way, I think that the movement of people through positions and into different parts of the industry actually makes all of this more fruitful in a way, because if people are going to end up leaving the industry in some way, which we're seeing, we have a a talent loss in this industry at this point with people leaving and going into whether it's other, other industries altogether, they're taking their uh, bartending knowledge and seeing that as a transferable skill for sales, for example, and they're ending up somewhere else. Um, You know, it it says that maybe it was important that people moved around in positions or in in the tier system as well so that other people have opportunities to move in. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, the major thing too is I didn't want to become a cautionary tale of the industry. Um, I didn't want to be that old gray bartender that used to be awesome. You know, I, and quite frankly, I started drinking too much um, because it wasn't a challenge. I was bored, uh, which was a big part of it too. Um, And then sure enough, when I went into, uh, you know, eventually I ended up in corporate America and it was starting all over again too. There were things I didn't know about that I was unprepared for. Um, I ended up leaving because of, um, I I left because of payroll uh, discrepancies straight up and I talked with multi layers of management and the issue cannot be addressed because as it turns out, most corporations aren't meritocracies. And I became increasingly frustrated and it was time to go. Um, I I love the people I worked with. It was really hard for me to leave. It it took about a year for me to get out of that um, because I love the people I worked with so much. And I mean, we were a little family. There was, my spirits team was eight people nationwide. We were small, uh, but we built that brand like on our backs and it wasn't easy. But when I'm making a double digit percentage less than somebody who was hired a couple of years after me, I have a real big problem with that. And I made it clear and it fell on deaf ears and I left. Mm-hmm. Part of, that was part of my process. Yeah, I, that was part of my journey. It was extremely rewarding, until it wasn't, uh, and then it was time to go. But these things don't shift overnight. Mm-hmm. I guess. I guess the over um, the underlying point to all that was that there were there are always things you're unprepared for in in whatever you do, and uh, becoming uh, being prepared to pivot in any uncomfortable direction um, is, is something that uh, you can't really be taught. You got to kind of figure it out, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. And, and try not to try not to screw up and piss people off along the way. Cause we're all connected, whether we like to admit it or not. <laughs> I don't want to get all Bill Hicks about, you know, cosmic theory <laughs> on how we're all connected, but yeah. <laughs> well, I think we, we ended up uh, jumping into the, what the world sort of looks like. One of the things we want to talk about of what the world sort of looks like without uh, on premise. And I think that um, one of the things that I'm interested in talking with you, Eric, as someone who knows so much about uh, spirits and about both the on premise and now the off premise is some of the sorts of 
insights that you have as to where things are going to be heading this year. Something that we talk about quite a bit in our Instagram live uh, episodes and things that we've done. We haven't really given a lot of uh, time and attention to the spirit world and specifically brown spirits. And so we didn't really, uh, you know, give much thought as to who else we could we could have on here because you're the you're the right person for it there's, and there's you're a, just becoming a better and better person for it every time so <laughs> um this is this is one of the things that really makes me pay attention to beer other than the fact that it's delicious um mm-hmm. is that usually what happens in beer there's a certain part that'll carry into the spirits community as well um say uh look at like a couple years ago when growth by acquisition or merging was rampant uh these little breweries were getting scooped up by the big guys everybody was throwing their heads back and howling sell out or whatever but at the end of the day i don't know about you guys if i got a dump truck of money pulled up in front of my house yeah i'd take it so these people <laughs> could shut up and quit complaining but it, it's kind of one of those things too that you know it, it's it, it's kind of starting to happen in in the spirits community you look at um there's a re- recent announcement that mgp of indiana is going to be merging uh slash consolidating with luxco which mgp uh they they do have their own brands that they've been getting behind over the last couple of years being rossville union uh the remus whiskey line things like that and Luxco would be like Ezra Brooks. Um, there's a couple under there too, but Ezra Brooks is their, one of their bigger whiskeys. And it also happens to be literally right across the street from MGP. So I think it's like kind of, it, it wasn't a small acquisition. I think it was $475, $485 million acquisition. The, the thing about spirits is that um, it's not as fast, just in general, it's not nearly as fast as beer. Beer has, beer completely echoes to me as kind of an outsider, but someone who pays attention to it. Uh, Beer's attention span directly reflects the attention span of people that are on social media. Calling it two weeks would be generous uh, because it's not. Everybody wants a shiny new thing. You can produce it faster. You can get it out there faster, Um, you know, and do whatever you can. It's easier to keep up with trends. Uh, Whereas spirits, you're trying to, turn around a tugboat in a toilet, you know, where it's like, it's a little, it's a little slower to do. Uh, It's not as easy to, uh, especially with whiskey that um, you can't make it today and sell it tomorrow. Well, I mean, you can, but nobody does. I mean, you you shouldn't. And because it's so much slower, um, but it's also a lot more stable too. You can have whiskey on the shelf for a while. It's not going to go back. It's the immediacy and the high turnover of beer is because it is a fragile product. It's more of an agricultural product than spirits are, whereas spirits is to me a manufactured product. It is, mm-hmm. it is a mechanized thing that goes through a scientific process and a manufacturing process. And yeah, with whiskey, it gets aged in a barrel. That's where romance comes in a little bit. Um, and that's where stories come in a little bit too. But the merger and acquisition thing, I think we're just starting to see that. Um, I think Alexa, you and I were talking about that a couple of weeks ago and to mm-hmm. see it happen was just like, okay, cool. Um, I, I didn't, you know, I, I'm not saying I have a crystal ball cause I sure as shit don't, but I think it's going to become a lot more common 
um, with smaller brands that are out there that don't have a marketing budget um, or feed on the streets, having bars and restaurants closed is really crushing these guys. And when it said in the article, and uh, pretty much all the articles that came out about the MGP and Luxco consolidation merger, whatever they're calling it, is MGP is is looking forward to, um, I don't want to say taking advantage, but utilizing the Luxco sales structure that is in there, using their the using those people that are out there on the streets. You know, you can you can make a clever hashtag or have every bartender in the world make a boulevardier on Instagram live. But at the end of the day, it's boots on the streets that are going to save this. And when things start to open up, it's who's going to be more aggressively positioned to, to be prepared. And MGP was a, this merger is brilliant. I'm excited to see these guys because believe it or not, they're still kind of a little guy, even though they, they make a frightening amount of, of spirits, but they're going up against beam Suntory. Um, Kieran Ichiban that owns uh, Four Roses, um, Diageo, that monster. They're they're gonna they're preparing themselves to go at least fifteen rounds. It's gonna be exciting to see. Yeah, it it, it is. It you know to me when we look at the pure number of four hundred and fifty four seventy five million dollars, we're looking at roughly the same amount that. Uh, Afira spent on Sweetwater Brewery in, uh, I think it was Q3 of last year. And that was a move really to build out. There were similar objectives there in a way. Uh, Afria wanted market access to the United States. They wanted a great, uh, you know, distribution network. Sweetwater offers that, um, you know, also reps in market, like you were saying, um, access to retail. Um, that's going to be good for marijuana infused products once legalization occurs. And so, you know, I think a lot of these moves are about, um, expanding and, um, deepening the competency sets that they have as well. And I think that one of the interesting things about this MGP deal is, the fact that now they are going to have in-house brands that compete price-wise with brands that are created using the liquid that they sell to clients. Right. And, and just having firsthand knowledge towards what MGP brands are doing right now. Um, they they've got single barrels that they sell to, um, independent people or stores. It all has to obviously get pulled through stores because of the third party, um, third three-tier distribution, excuse me, uh, system that we live in, which is probably a whole other subject for a different podcast. Maybe Pat Berger could come in on that, but, um, people should see, be able to put their mouths under barrels. That's what we all do. Right? <laughs> Turn the spigot, oh, right? I'll hold the nail. <laughs> the, the way it is, is, and we're, we're having that infrastructure, whether it's sales or marketing or having those, those, uh, those warm boots on the, on the streets is, you start to associate that, assuming you hire the right people, which I'm sure they will, that with uh, personality. Um, I see our like I, I see liquor stores just like I see bars, in that you know every bottle on that shelf owes rent, and if those bottles get behind on their rent or aren't paying their rent in time, when they're gone, you don't bring them back in. 
that tenant was a pain in the ass. You want to bring somebody else in to give them a shot. And then once that, once you start to turn it on, um, which MGP will, MGP slash Luxco will, once they figure it out, they're going to explode um, because we're, we're spoiled for choice with everything right now. Uh, the internetification of everything has made us spoiled. And seeing that, um, you know, everybody, it's the same with beer too. Everybody wants the fresh new thing, the shiny new toy. But at the end of the day, you know, I like beer too, but sometimes I don't want to think about it. Sometimes I just want to high life and just enjoy the comfort zone. And I think they're going to start entering that category a little bit, which should be really exciting. Um, I'm wondering what's going to happen with people they're supplying juice to, but again, that's a little above my pay grade to know those things. <laughs> it, it, it is a, it is an interesting thing to kind of think about because mm -hmm. there are a lot of brands that are in the uh, wholesale price range of 20 to $30 that uh, MGP was previously supplying. And now they're bringing brands that are of that price range in-house. And so, you know, maybe this also will dictate a change in what MGP produces too. They may not just become, they may become more than just like a rye focused uh, distillery. They already are. They're already focused on that. Um, a lot of their mat, they're putting a lot more emphasis on their other mash bills or, you know, grain recipes that they're putting out there. They're, they're beyond, they're getting beyond the 95% rye, 5% barley mash bill that, that put them on the map uh, a while ago. And, um, what's interesting is the people that they're supplying to, uh, Redemption Whiskeys, uh, my former brand, um, was MGP. We celebrated that. Uh, we did not hide behind, um, really bullshit romantic stories. Like we were just like, no, we source whiskey. Um, we buy it and we do our thing and it's different and and people it's it's that curtain's been pulled back a little bit because people aren't like all mgp rye is the same if you try redemption next to templeton next to bullet next to dickel uh and whatever other ryes are out there they're very different and that be that is because each of these um each of these brands has different distilling contracts with them they, they're aging at different places um, whether it's their facility or at MGP and, you know, it's not like redemption. It's not like we pulled up with a couple of trucks and said, Hey, we'd like to buy some whiskey. Like these are huge deals. These are, these are things that are, um, planned. They are whiskey futures. And, and that's what I'm really curious about as to, uh, and I just, honestly, I don't know enough to comment on it, but it's going to be interesting to watch over the next couple of years to see what happens with that. If it changes at all, it might not, I, again, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. do you do you foresee any other moves uh that are growth by acquisition and mergers coming from other big players whether it's Pernod or whether it's beam um i mean it, it's already been quietly happening i i just think um you know, when, when like Four Roses got bought by Kieran Ichiban, like you couldn't buy Four Roses in this country until like 1994. Um, it was huge in Japan. It was uh, big in Spain and France actually were the biggest consumers of Four Roses bourbon. 
up until it was relaunched in the US. And then it just, it took a while to build that brand. Again, this is because we have such short attention spans nowadays. It's hard to think back to 1994, <laughs> but they, they came to market and it was challenging for them because for one, bourbon wasn't as big of a category. There wasn't as much available, blah, blah, blah. But they were already going up against, this is what I drink because this is what I drink people. You know, it, it was a less adventuresome drinker, a less curious drinker, uh, a less less of a drinker that were getting thumbs up on Instagram or whatever, too. I mean, that's all part of the equation. Mm-hmm. So over the next couple of years, uh, I think we're going to see more of it. Um, I think it's going, I shouldn't say more of it. I think it's going to continue to happen, but I'm hoping that these guys are going to continue to be as transparent as they are about it because... I mean, if, if you're not transparent about things nowadays and you get found out, you're in trouble. Like people don't forget that. People don't like to be lied to. Uh, and I'm one of them for sure. Right. Just, just tell us, let us make our own decisions. It's just that easy. You know, I think that's part of the concealment with a lot of these companies though, that source their, their spirit from like MGP, but they don't, they don't say it, right? They're not, they're not telling customers where, like, are they producing it? Are they buying it? And so I do, sorry, go ahead. That's, that's not exactly, um, not every brand has, um, has the choice. It depends on their, it depends on their contract with whoever is supply, with whoever is distilling the spirits. There are non-disclosure agreement brands out there. Um, I used to work for one as well that we weren't allowed to say where it was from. And coming from a world that celebrated transparency, that was a huge mental yoga to try and sell them both at the same time. And to kind of be like, well, we can't say that. But I found that if you say that, you can't say that because we're working on different things moving forward and this might change over time. So like that is a, that is a form of its own transparency too. Like we didn't make up some story. We had clever marketing quips that we would throw in, but that's everything. We would be transparent about not being able to be transparent, which people respect, which people respected strangely enough. Uh, I, I kind of like, you know, we're in uncharted waters here. And, and these, you know, because our team was so small, pretty much every conversation we had was high level at that point. So I was just like, fuck it, I'm going to do it and and see what happens and it it turns out it was met with really warm reception because at the end of the day it it just so happened that the whiskey was fantastic which always helps but people respected that and what i showed them i I built in a seminar in uh in a whiskey bar in austin i'm like one of my last trips down there to like here my seminar i didn't i really didn't talk about whiskey i had bottles open i'm like help yourself whatever this is extremely casual but I had a presentation that I had the big screen going and all of that. And I'm like, here's how you navigate government websites legally um, to find out where, where your whiskey comes from. And people were like, holy shit. I'm like, yeah, I'm like, I, I'm no expert. I, I'm not trained on this at all. I was just curious enough to figure it out. It's not that challenging, really. It's, but that's, a, that's the kind of person I am because I had been lied to before by brands, uh, by marketing people and all that. And I felt burned. I, I still won't drink those whiskeys because of it. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the 
thirst for transparency on the part of consumers nowadays is going to change the nature of contracts that um, marketing brands or like will have with distilleries or with their suppliers? Uh, that's a, that's an impossible um, quotient to grab. Um, it depends on where the brand wants to go into the future, um, whether or not the distillery thinks they can keep up with their growth potential, um, things like that. I mean, th th that's what we say in the spirits world is, is take, take all your successes last year and add 25%, but maybe take away from your budget. And that that's just what we anticipate. <laughs> um, that you, I, I think it will, um, I think it will change a little bit, um, but also too, there's 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 things that we don't want to talk about because it took us a long time to learn, and we don't want to just give away the ghost. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm not gonna tell people how to be successful. Figure figure it out for yourself. <laughs> that's that's the whole point. Is the the journey, the exploration? It's it's a filtration, really. You know, how do you, how do we know so much about these things, guys? It's like, well, we didn't when we started, you know, I worked at 13 years at one of the best whiskey bars on the planet. And then I worked in corporate America in a very high volume, very competitive marketplace. It's been a bit of a rest this past year, uh, but a stressful rest nonetheless. And I mean, at the end of the day, who knows what's going to happen? Another uh, another aspect of this deal kind of brought to mind the issues of both uh, whiskey futures and then private barrel selections. And I think the private barrel selections topic ties into what we were a little bit of what we were talking about earlier, and that is the on premise private barrel selections were a very uh, a fun thing to get involved with if you were an account Uh in my previous place of work, we did a couple of private barrel selections and I sat it on more than we ended <laughs> up doing, um, which, which was, which was fun. And it was a, a good experience. And, you know, the customers really appreciated that stuff and it was a great, uh, story. And I assume for the brand, it was a good opportunity to, um, have exposure to the right audience. And, uh, also, I mean, a good, sale to sell that many cases guaranteed to one place um sure. now there's a certain amount of stress that comes with that too um sure well what, what is it like to pitch one of those to an account it sucks <laughs> why does it uh, suck yeah, you're just you're just you're you're for one um you, you never open with that um there, there's a lot of moving pieces that go into the barrel selection thought process and that like is it being used as a marketing tool? Um, a lot of these private whiskey groups, you know, buy a barrel of whiskey and they, they slap some goofy sticker on it and then they're proud about it. And that's, that's cool that, that they feel connected in that way. But on the other side of that same coin, you look at when people come in and pitch barrel selections at warehouse liquors, um, Gene uh, told me that he wasn't interested in, 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 in heaven's door because of the brand story and, and it's confusing. And I, I entertain the conversation with him, but it's, it's just Gene being Gene. But at the same point, like the, the people that think that the same samples are being presented to 
um, you know, to chuckleheads.com or whoever wants to buy a barrel versus Gene at Warehouse or Mike at Delilah's, they are not being presented the same thing. So there's like a lot of that kind of extra thought, um, that extra preparedness as somebody who would present to people. It's, it's incredibly stressful. You have to kind of understand what they're doing. Um, it's, it's just as much a favor to them as it is to you. It's, it's, a, it's very symbiotic. Uh, it's, it's hard not to take personal too. Like when, when Gene wasn't interested in the heaven's door thing, I said, okay, that's fine. I completely understand it. And I have, I have to respect that decision. You know, I, I'm not going to go into a hardware store and ask for a loaf of bread. I'm, I'm going to go and spend my energy elsewhere. Should it be needed? Mm -hmm. It's, it's a unique process. It, it's incredibly stressful. And if you don't know what you're doing, um, it can go bad very quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that my experiences were very mixed. There were folks that did a really nice job with it, uh, some of which we went with, some of which we didn't. Uh, but there were a lot of opportunities that were put in front of me that were very similar to a brewery trying to sell me on a collaboration beer, um, which <laughs> happened much more frequently than a private. Yeah. I mean, that was like a weekly thing. Someone came out of the woodwork and said, oh, we want to we want to partner up with you. We see that you do these things with these other people. And, you know, it's one of those things where you have to explain that, well, this thing that you think may, that may to you seem like appeared out of thin air was actually the product of a 10 year relationship that I had with these, with these yep. other people yep. or a really great idea that came about within that time frame as well too. And, it's also a matter of understanding that business really well. So yeah, beer is going to sell really well at that account. So I, I feel as a buyer and the person that ultimately is responsible to see through that depletion that, okay, I, you know, I can take a little more of a risk, whether it's stylistically or price wise on a gamble like that versus a spirit that may be higher in cost, like to me, $50 a bottle, for example, yeah. that's a, that's a harder thing to do. And sure. uh, even though the margins on liquor are uh, a little more generous than with, with beer, it's still uh, a challenging thing to do. And it's actually, uh, I think it, I took it as kind of insulting to my relationships with those other people when someone came up and said, Oh, well, we have a two barrel system and, you can um, brew whatever you want there. And, you know, I'm just thinking to myself, I haven't bought anything from you. Why do you want my business? <laughs> yeah. Well, that and why are you leading in that way? You should show me what you do instead of tell me about the possibilities of what I'm going to do at your place. I'll just start my own brewery if, if we're going to do that. It, it's, it can be a, a very unique way to set, uh, to set yourself up to develop a, a really cool bond with people, though. Um, you look at if you're working for a brand specifically like I have, um, you're prepare, you prepare yourself to, for people not to like your stuff. That's fine. Um, it's, I'm going to focus on the people that want to do it rather than try and prove that you should like it to people who don't. And when you talk to a retailer or bar and restaurant, whether you're doing a, a brewery collaboration or picking a barrel, you're putting your name on something. That is, you know, serving other people's stuff 
um, is way easier than actually putting your own creation out into the world or your you're part of a creation out into a world. And it's, it's preparing yourself for rejection, which is a very challenging thing to do. Um, luckily I've been rejected many times, so I'm kind of fearless that way. Uh, but it, it's, it does sting a little bit, um, especially when like Gene, you know, didn't want to be involved with the Heaven's Door single barrel program. I was personally excited about it, but he's not interested. I have to respect that. Um, regardless of whether or not he's my boss <laughs> or one of my bosses, you know, however many jobs I have right now. But it's it's that stress that the account assumes too. Like, what if what if you what if uh, Alexi? What if you made a beer with whoever and and people hated it, or you got two bottle caps on untapped as an average, or whatever the fuck beer people do? Uh, that 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 stings, man. That really stings. And preparing yourself for that, it's just like, okay. Uh, and two, like we're essentially asking people to work more when we do a barrel selection thing. Hey, are you? can you work a little harder for us? Mm-hmm. Hey, you want to take some time out of your day to help us build our brand a little bit too and be involved with your operation? It's not an easy thing to do. But if you're charming enough, you can get away with it most times, which is nice. Absolutely. And I, and I think that there's something to, I guess where I was going with that is that if you follow the good energy that you're getting from an account, ultimately you're more likely to have success there. And you also, if you're getting that energy from them, presumably, you know, enough about their business to where this is actually going to be a good decision. Oh, this restaurant that has this many locations can deplete this many cases in the amount of time that this agreement is, is applicable for. So, you know, cause you don't want, you ideally don't want to have to stress that restaurant to pull everything in immediately. If they don't have to, that's part of the deal with some of these, depending on the wholesaler and depending on the supplier, but some restaurants may not go through it. So it's a challenging thing of having a very real conversation that a buyer sometimes doesn't want to have because buyers never want to admit fault to anything or weakness. And, uh, and you as a supplier rep doesn't want to either. No, for sure. I mean, supply side, um, I won't, I shouldn't say supply side, but my role in the industry as a, as an ambassador slash, I, I always saw myself as a liaison was I'm out there developing relationships with not only accounts and buyers, GMs, managers, whatever, uh, decision makers, uh, but also too, is I'm, I'm, I was large, a big part of my responsibility was giving feedback to my teams in a neat, uh, orderly, organized and efficient manner. So how do you capture uh, a conversation with Mike Miller in a bullet pointed email is you don't. Uh, You get yourself entrenched in this little uh, mess we call the industry just a little bit further. And and you hone your skills to the point where they are not uh, replicable. Um, Nobody can do what you do, Sam. Nobody can do what Alexi does. Nobody can do what I do. And it's it's important to try though. Um, develop uh, develop a, a network of people that you can just 
read. We're, we deal with people so much that you have an instinct that can't be taught, that is learned over time through repetition, through failure and through success. And, it, and it's that patience of it. Um, Gene, actually, I didn't even present the single barrel thing to Gene. Uh, he, he sent me an email and I said, yeah, I'm excited for it. Let me know if you want to set up a tasting. And then he told me and he just wasn't interested. I'm like, okay, well, one of my three jobs right now is, is not going to be happy. That's okay. It's pretty good average, actually. <laughs> you yeah. know, you're like, that's fine. <laughs> uh, you can't win them all. Um, the way I see it, though, is if you're putting your name on something as a retailer or a point of service, is that person takes your collaboration beer home or drinks it there or takes your bottle of whiskey home. Um, that's a piece of your establishment that they're taking with them. That is a different marketing opportunity as well. It's that's where, to me, that's where the collaboration comes in um, is, is you're selling the romance of it. Uh, things people are attached to romantically through rarity or through the journey or whatever the fuck, those things taste better to me. <laughs> Full admission. Speaking of tasting rarity, how different are some of these, uh, these spirits you're talking about Buffalo Trace, Pappy, Weller, Weller World. I know this is something that's discussed a lot uh, in the sure. spirit world and as part of this kind of transparency conversation we were talking about earlier. Um, can you can you lift some of that up as far as uh, your experience with the beverage with beverage testing and the sensory part? And what is it about these brands that uh, that is the allure? Um, a lot of it is, um, it's, first of all, it's delicious, uh, objectively, objectively speaking, of course, um, a lot of it is marketing too. um, the beverage testing Institute. This was before my time, but we helped, uh, we had helped put the Pappy Van Winkle, uh, on the map. We weren't the, the only thing behind it, but we were one of many parts that really started to, uh, get those embers of success to bear flame and you look at it uh those those guys those brands um buffalo trace eagle rare weller blanton all the pappies they they aren't uh, they aren't transparent about their mash bills um which is fine that's just not something they want to do and that's okay but they definitely they found the beehive full of hype and they beat the shit out of that beehive with, uh, with a rake um, to, to the point where some of those bottles sell in secondary markets for thousands and thousands of dollars, which um, is, it, it's very challenging to deal with in a retail environment. Um, we have to watch things a lot. Um, you look at the retailer, if we try to sell, uh, even just going above MSRP for a lot of these, uh, we can get put on blast really quick, uh, much less if we try to, some people try to sell them at secondary prices and they get put on blast for it too. But usually it's the places that do that aren't trying to cultivate um, an audience of, I don't want to say connoisseurs because that's pretentious as hell, but um we we hold we hold things back for our regulars. We do private tastings. We sell bottles to um, to preferred customers. And uh, warehouse liquors, there's maybe eight of us that work there, so we're doing a lot of things at the same time. Um, 
I, I always thought it was kind of unfair well before I was in retail that the retailer would get thrown under the bus for selling a bottle of Blanton's for 200 bucks, but it's $25 for an ounce of it at, at your whiskey bar. Uh, I think that's extremely like out of both sides of the mouth sort of thing. Um, I don't get it. Um, do rare things taste better to people? Yes, absolutely. They do. I completely subscribe to that where to me where that goes sideways and and maybe you guys can um, echo this a little bit is it becomes a question of what is rare to who's drinking it. You know, um, we're, we're industry professionals. We have access to things that not a lot of people get access to as readily as we do. So um, if I wanted a bottle of Pappy, um, I could get one and I'm not trying to flex. That's just what I have access to, uh, through my channels of making a living. But when I find a bottle of, you know, a three-year-old heaven hill bourbon that was only released in Japan in 1999 on the South side for 12 bucks a fifth, that's what makes me freak out. Like I found some and I immediately started asking my whiskey nerd friends about it. Like I'd never seen or heard of this label before. And it was a total like, okay, I looked at it and it passed all the laws. So it actually was bourbon, uh, looked at it, but the back label is in Japanese. Like I freaked out. Mm -hmm. It's three-year-old heaven hill whiskey at 80 proof. Um, it's, it's objectively speaking, not insanely delicious, <laughs> but, <laughs> but cracking that open, knowing, uh, and I've shared a couple of drinks with, with my friends and I've given a couple bottles away to people, to whiskey nerds, realizing that like, we might be the only people in the United States drinking this whiskey right now. That's kind of cool in its own way. Does that, did that make it taste better to us? Absolutely. hundred percent. So, it, I mean, it, it depends on your perspective and where you're coming from. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that finding those bottles is a lot of fun. Okay. I think that bottle hunting is a very, very uh, enjoyable thing. Very much. And I find that it's actually a way to spread out my support among a lot of retailers, too, because okay. as part as part of as part of the hunt, I'm going to a number of different places instead of going to the place that I know gets allocated this thing. Uh, and I'm going to buy from them only because I know that the more rapport that I build with them, the more likely I am to get these things. I'm going after things that are already in inventory. Yeah, for sure. It's, I mean, I guess that's it too. It's, it's kind of a return to innocence. Um, because I remember when these these allocated whiskeys or hard to get whiskeys uh, just sat on the shelf because nobody wanted to pay over a hundred dollars for old bourbon, and now they're flying, which is awesome because uh, they put a ton of work into that and a ton of research in, in how to get that to be successful. I have a problem with having somebody let me buy something. I get really weird about that. Um, I, I kind of surrendered myself to the lack of preciousness of things. Um, but my wife and I have a tradition. Every presidential election, we open a bottle of Pappy and drink it right from the bottle. And if we have people over, they have to drink it right from the bottle. Granted, this year was a little different, but that's a rule <laughs> in our house on election night because, you know, it's nothing's that precious. But um, it, it's the finding it. 
it's seeing it and like we call it uh dusty hunting i'm not sure how it's referred to in the beer community but um like when you find that bottle of old granddad bonded from 1982 from national distillers before it was jim beam you're just like holy shit and it probably costs you 20 bucks because it's sitting in the middle of nowhere nobody knows what it is and it hasn't been picked over um for as much as i love uh boutique liquor stores like warehouse liquors and even our, our big guys like Benny's or total wine and more that's creeping into illinois you're not finding that shit there you, you're just not maybe they'll let you buy a bottle of weller 12 if you you know jump through a flaming hoop for them or whatever but that's just not something i'm prepared to do <laughs> mm-hmm. metaphorically speaking of course <laughs> i mean i i don't know it, it's you're right though Alexi. it's the joy of the hunt that that accidental thing um it, it becomes almost like extra sensory there there are some liquor stores in chicago in, that aren't too far from the north side here where i live that like i i know they have stuff well, and then just being on the floor too, as, as an employee of a place like that, um, you know, we, we really don't, we put maybe a couple bottles out here and there of the extremely allocated whiskeys. And cause we, we want to keep it at least a little democratic, you know, we'll, we'll trickle out, you know, a Blanton's every now and again, um, just because like, we don't, we want to just have somebody get lucky or we'll hand sell it or whatever. But it's a great way to, again, like build that trust. If somebody comes in and looks for brand X because they read some article and we don't have it, so they leave, that's alarming to me. That's ridiculous. Um, there's people every day that do that, though. Hey, do you this blah, blah, blah wrote about whatever the, whatever the hell? Oh, you don't have that? Okay, cool. Um, I'm going to leave. It, it's the same people that come into our store and see something that you know they can get at Binnie's for three dollars cheaper of course they can because it's for one that's a scale of economics for one because i was paying attention in high school sort of but they're like well i'm just going to go to Binnie's and get it then i'm like okay well and i've done this to people on the floor be like so you're going to get in your car you're going to go to Binnie's, you're going to park you're going to go in there hoping they have it and then go back out or you can just do that now it becomes a question of like how much is your time worth mm-hmm. people flipping a 30 dollars bottle of bourbon for 60 bucks because the age has dropped off of it i don't know about you but they, there's actually a lot of work to try and like you have to find somebody to buy it you have to find somewhere to ship it from you have to assume it's going to get there safely you have to do and people do it all the time i'm like for 30 dollars to me that's not worth my time and I'm not saying that because I make a ton of money. I'm saying that because it's a lot of stress and it's like, really like, it's just to just enjoy it. You know, we, we have the saying that like, you know, if you want to impress us, uh, show what you have open, not what you have mm-hmm. and share it. It's just whiskey. <laughs> One in, in looking, uh, in doing a little bit of research and poking around ahead of this episode, mm-hmm. I came into the a group on Reddit that 
uh, is involved in making barrel selections. I found a lot of publications that have Patreons that are driven by barrel selection opportunities and things like that, which to me as a retail, as someone with more of a retailer's perspective was kind of interesting because I didn't really think that this was something that was available to individual people. Yeah. Like it makes sense in the context of it's sponsored by a retailer. The retailer is going to, it's going to get pulled through a certain retailer and then they ship or people go and buy it there, which makes sense. And there's absolutely nothing illegal about that. Uh, It's, it's just kind of an interesting way to approach it. I mean, do you have uh, any feelings about that? as far as it pertains to this practice in general and the value that this had in on-premise? Um, I, I think it's fine. Um, I think, uh, I mean, there's a couple of angles I look at it from, uh, from a retailer's point of view, it's a bit of extra work. Uh, it, it can be kind of uh, an exercise in faith too. Uh, because there isn't a there as far as i know there typically isn't a contract drawn up between the retailer and whoever bought the barrel it's just an understanding uh a general person's agreement if you will um from the supply side um you get a shitload of whiskey going through in the county years that's good <laughs> so mm-hmm. uh just from a numbers point of view uh coming from a sales perspective uh it's good either way um the, the more cynical part of me asks why, um, which is where the branding starts to come in. You see a lot of smaller brands coming out. Um, again, we're spoiled for choice, but there's a couple brands on our shelves that do that their barrel picks do really well. Uh, people talk about them in various forums and you know social media groups, Reddit threads, things like that. And, and that's awesome. But the non-barrel picks uh, or that aren't associated with a, a, a private group or whatever, they just sit there. Nobody buys them. So it's, it's this weird, uh, it's this weird like kumsi kumsa sort of thing to where you're just like, okay, but like I thought this brand was popular. And then all of a sudden like the retailer has to figure out and we have to hand sell it, which is fine. Uh, happy to do it because it's our jobs. But it's, it's this weird thing to try and figure out. And going back to, you know, you look at the Luxco MGP merger or acquisition. I'm not sure exactly how people are classifying it. I've seen mostly merger. But you look at what they're doing and what MGP was pretty transparent about because that's how they roll. They're transparent, which is awesome. That's where they were saying in some of these articles, most of them, that they're looking forward to inheriting and and gaining Luxco's uh, infrastructure as far as personnel goes and having their feet on the streets, things like that. Because brand X of private selection Y is gonna fly because that group already promised to buy all of it. It's already sold. But if that doesn't have their private sticker on it, what happens? Well, you got to have somebody in there to actually sell it. You know what I mean? So it's kind of full circle that way. And, and I don't know if that answers your question at all, but that's that's how I see it. I see it from a lot of different angles, which was, it can be stressful at times. Uh, 
for one, I'm not sure what I can talk about, <laughs> but um, that's just kind of the observation from multiple angles, both a consumer, uh, an enthusiast, uh, a salesperson and a supplier or being part of a supply team. It's a very unique because I enjoy it. Um, do I want to do it forever? Absolutely not. <laughs> but we're in a pandemic. I'll take it and get it at this point. I, I guess I kind of wonder that about how how this is going to be perceived by on-premise folks. Like, does this change the value that they perceive of a private barrel if all of a sudden while the pandemic has happened and all these places have been closed is that, oh, he has a private barrel and she has a private barrel and all we all the, have private all, barrel. We all have it. All Oprah about it. <laughs> then the restaurants come back and the bars come back and say, well, what happened to us? We were just, we sat out this whole game and all of a right. sudden this thing that used to be something that would draw people into the restaurants or get them to spend another 10 bucks, which is what the restaurants really need when they come back in is, is now not as viable of a channel as it was before. Um, yes, I, I completely understand that. But, um, with you look at how spoiled for choice we are, we're at a very interesting point of, uh, not to get Anne Rand about it, but you know, when everything is special, nothing is, and I think there's going to be, uh, there's going to be a point where all that falls apart. Um, because honestly, like one of, one of my biggest problems with, uh, with the internet and why I, I, I was off social media for the first couple months of the pandemic, because it, for one, we are all collectively in an abusive relationship with our government, which was horrible to be a part of, but also too, I mean, there was, there's always an abundance of opinion, but not an abundance of truth. And that's something I have a really big problem with. Um, it, it, it's gotten me in trouble, but, um, at least I'm not a liar <laughs> sort of thing and asking challenging questions to people too. Uh, but being prepared to be in challenging situations, um, at the end of the day, when you look at what's happening in bars and restaurants and as that engine starts to rev up again, um, I don't think they're going to see what's happening uh, in retail and private whiskey groups and all of that and, and be felt left behind how I see it coming from the supply side and working with brands is um, as restaurants and bars start to open again, we need to be overly considerate more so than we've ever been and, and really start to develop those profound partnerships and deep relationships or continue those um, rather than look at these places as, wow, these guys can really help me hit my goal. I mean, it's, it's being sensitive to the people. Um, our bars and restaurants have been unnecessarily vilified for over a year now. And, and I get it. Um, and and it, may, it I hate to say it, but it kind of makes sense when you look at it from a distance. But these guys aren't looking at it from a distance. These guys are have their faces against the Monet painting and it doesn't make any sense to them. And coming out of a horrible administration uh, objectively speaking, horrible administration that we need to be gentle with them as they step back, as they start to reopen and be like, it's going to be okay. Uh, you know, I think it, it, hopefully this next year, um, 
or these next couple of years, however long it takes, because we're nowhere near to where we need to be yet. Um, hopefully we can do that with kindness and not uh, entitlement. But hope is fear. <laughs> I think hope is fear. Yeah. <laughs> what a what yeah. a what a fantastic way to cap this. I I don't even want to give you the opportunity for parting words because that was so eloquent. But oh, do you, you have any uh, any parting words for our audience? Um. Uh, Jesus. Um. I, uh, good manners. Uh, please and thank you and kindness. Um. I, I was raised by pretty much my grandmother because both my parents worked. Uh just good manners, a little bit of kindness, a little bit of patience. Um, I don't know, just do you. I, that's like, God, Jesus. You, like, that's the question that made me sound like an idiot. Awesome. <laughs> well, we can cut, we hey, can cut that entire part. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, I guess it's rule number one. Don't be a dick. That's all I got to say, really. That's, let's just follow that. Cool. Well, Eric, Sick. thanks for joining us this week. Oh, thank you for having me. It was fun. Yeah, of course. We'll, uh, we'll right. see everyone next week. 